Welcome to the Home Lab Show. Is this episode 32 already? That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it is episode 32. And uh, 32 is one of those numbers that us IT people, we remember, you know, 32, 64, 128, and so on. Oh, yeah. It's one of those. Yep, absolutely. So that's, uh, and while we're on that topic, it's important that you patch your system. So we uh, decided that we definitely need to have a talk about patching. And I've seen some myths. I've seen some uh, unusual things people have said, like, I don't patch my system. I'm afraid it'll break. Uh, Linux isn't Windows, and right. I'll we'll spend 30 seconds in the beginning talking about Windows patch management and uh, what a nightmare it is. But before we do that, we do want to get a little housekeeping out of the way and thank a sponsor of this show, and that is Linode. Linode is literally, if you're downloading this, how you got this show, uh, and especially because uh, a couple weeks ago, Jay increased the bandwidth on the server because so many people are downloading the show, so that's a great thing to hear uh, that so many of you like it, and many of you signed up for Linode. We've been seeing the stats, but it's a great service if you haven't, if you're curious. I mean, it's kind of a no risk. We have an offer code to get you started with Linode. It's a great place to start some of the projects that we've talked about, and it's not just something we recommend it is something we use i want to thank linode for being a sponsor of the show and let's talk about uh keeping it patched that way if you put something linode it's patched <laughs> yeah absolutely I, I think that's one of the first places to start is that you know some things are more important to patch than others i mean obviously you should patch everything but if you have something behind a firewall that's not exposed to the public internet it's not as important to patch it as it is something, you know, on a, on a cloud provider, or maybe if you've exposed something to the internet, obviously those things are the most um, important. But um, one of the things we'll be talking about today too, is that we're human, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. And we often forget things because we, you know, have things going on in our lives and we can't always remember to do the thing. And then sometimes we're reminded we should have done the thing when um, everything goes downhill. So yeah, it's important to keep up. It's important to keep up with it. Now I said, I'd briefly talk about windows patching. Um, I think, you know, listening because I did, I was able to catch up on like the latest security now podcast. And the, I tweeted the other day that Microsoft has done more to get people thinking about paperless offices than any of those little emails that say, Hey, don't print this paper because they can't get patching. Right. So we're not going to dwell much on windows patching, basically turn it on. Yes. Do it brace for impact. Every time it's the thing you have to do that you don't want to do. that will probably break something and probably has become the mantra for 2021 when it comes to Microsoft patching. Right. Uh, there's nothing good about Microsoft right. patching. I mentioned Steve Gibson security. Now he's ranted about it. Bleeping computers got a collection of articles on how hard it is to keep printers up and running on it. Um, and it's also one of the challenges that you face as IT. It's like Windows is just the beast you wrestle with. Nothing does amazing patch management, not Windows and not third-party software that's supposed to manage it for Windows. I say that as an IT professional who's been using and managing Windows servers for over 20 years. So right. it, has been, it is downhill. But that's the reason the enterprise world runs on things like Linux and BSD. We're going to keep it a little bit more uh, Linux focused here, but it, it just patches better. It's a better system from the ground up uh, than the way Microsoft currently handles their patching system. It's just, it, it's a lot less broken, but there's still some nuance to it. But I don't, I, what happens is, and the reason it's important to mention the Windows one is I think there's so much carryover where people have the same fear of things will break when I patch something in Linux because they have that same taste in their mouth from managing Windows servers. And like, oh man, every time I hit update on this, it something else goes wrong. But that's generally not the case. Windows uh, right. is problematic. Linux is pretty smooth in patching overall. 
I think so too. Yeah. I mean, there's some edge cases every now and then, but um, there is with everything. So, I mean, there's probably nothing I could say that's ever a hundred percent, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, windows, it's kind of weird. It's just one of those things that hasn't really changed all that much. It seems like with windows Vista, it became orders of magnitude worse uh, coming off of windows XP. Windows seven was a little, little bit better, but it kept, you know, just being the same, which is kind of like, okay, we're in 2021. Shouldn't we, do things differently now. Um, but then again, uh, there's quirks in every operating system like that. And Linux, yeah. as great as it is, has some pros and cons too that we'll be getting into. Yep. But the first thing is important that especially public facing things, and this is where yep. I always have them on unattended updates. We make sure that is completely constantly patched when something is public facing because, well, with very few exceptions, the Apache one was actually interesting because the and it, this is a good thing they found that when there was a recent patchy vulnerability found that people patched really fast so fast though that that new version of apache actually had the vulnerability but you know it uh -oh. didn't take long for people to uh find it mitigate it and patch the subsequent patches but of course you know it took a couple iterations but because there's not a patch release cycle you don't have to wait till next month to do it these patches pretty much get pushed out uh, as soon as they're available for you to apply for most of the major operating systems yep yep absolutely and, and one of the first things to bring up I, I guess is the uh, elephant in the room which is uptime you know we linux people like to brag at the uptime you can run the uptime command on any Linux server. It tells you how long it's been running since the previous um, time it was started. And, you know, someone might brag, oh, I've been up for two years straight. Well, great, but you've probably had updates uh, sometime in there that you probably needed to reboot. We'll get into why you might need to reboot or not in a minute. But uptime is just one of those things that I think people are obsessed with. I don't really understand why. I mean, yeah, it is kind of cool. But at the same time, does it really matter? I mean, if you have to reboot, if it's not going to, I mean, it's not like we're running a business in our house. Well, I guess I am here, aren't I? But not everyone is doing that. So a little bit of downtime in rebooting isn't really that big of a deal. But going back to your point, yeah, I mean, if it's public facing, you definitely have to do whatever you have to do to keep it patched. Still no guarantee that it's going to be hack proof. Actually, there's no such thing as that. But um, I think the minimum that you could do is keep everything patched. Yeah, and for the most part with Linux, you don't deal with as many rebooting issues. Uh, right. The only time you reboot is the kernel, pretty much. I don't think there's really any other thing that's going to cause you to reboot. So it's only when there's new kernel availability, right. and that's not something that's happening on a daily basis versus you know, the Apache is a great example because it runs a lot of web servers. So as the Apache one rolled out, you'd run the update, and then you just quickly restart the service. Like it would grab, hey, look, here's the new version of Apache now that we're restarted the service. And that is almost unnoticeable to the users. A quick restart of Apache maybe breaks a couple sessions. It generally provided you don't have an ancient system, it takes a long time to restart right. the service. You you have a very minimal amount of disruption uh, when you do that. And this applies to actually most services in Linux. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the biggest differences between Windows and Linux is that Windows is going to keep bothering you over and over and over again until you give it and restart. That's it. I mean, it's just going to keep bothering you about it. And, and some versions will try to just, uh, you know, pick a time by default to reboot. You could change it, but they really want you to reboot. Now, when you update a Linux system, you can very well get a message that says you should reboot your machine, but you are free to ignore that. You're, you're free just to not do that. So you could just say, no, thank you. I don't want to reboot. 
because maybe as the Linux administrator for your own systems, you understand when you actually have to reboot, because sometimes with a Linux distribution, it's more of a recommendation. But if you know exactly what was updated, then you can make a more conscious decision as far as whether a reboot is actually necessary before you just go and do it. So if, if Apache, like you were saying, is one of the things that was you know, updated, probably not. Could you see a recommendation? Maybe, you probably won't see that either, but if you do, you could say, no thanks. I already know that was just Apache. I'm going to restart Apache and um, we're fine. So you can make that decision of and by yourself as far as whether or not you want to honor that request. Otherwise, Windows will just send someone to your door, knocking on your door. You need to restart your computer <laughs> or whatever they, they end up doing. Yeah, it certainly pesters you a lot more. It's usually just a suggestion on there and kind of left up to you. Right. So... One of the things that I think we should probably get out of the way is what types of situations may or may not uh, require or maybe re recommend a reboot. Now, you mentioned kernel updates. Now, there's a way to avoid reboots with all of this, which we'll get into, but I think that's a good place to start. With most distributions, when you have an updated kernel, it's not removing the old one. I mean, some distributions actually do. When you install an updated kernel, it replaces the kernel that you're running on. Um, which is kind of scary to think about. But Debian and Ubuntu and many others, they install the updated kernel alongside the current one. So that means in order to use the new kernel, you have to restart because it's during the boot process that it actually um, picks the most recent kernel on the list and boots into that. So just simply having that installed isn't always um, you know, all you need. Now, if it's a application, a daemon, or some kind of service that runs like Apache, Nginx, um, generally speaking, you could restart that service and you're fine. Some distributions will restart the service automatically. It kind of depends more on the package and how it's configured. So um, I remember, I think this is probably still the case when you in, uh, install an update to MySQL in Ubuntu, it restarts the MySQL process. That may not be what you want because your app goes down when that happens. Maybe you'd prefer to you know, just restart it later when you want to, but... Um, you'll notice that behaves differently depending on the context, the distribution, the package maintainer, things like that. Um, but it's, it is often the case when you update a package, the service will restart right then and there. And I believe that's all configurable, like for example, in Debian, in the unattended upgrades. Yeah, there, there's a flag for it um, that you could do, which is another topic. We'll be talking about that as well. Um, but I feel like you as the administrator, you have to watch for that. So if you know there's a critical vulnerability in Nginx and you update the package, you look at the output, you notice it didn't restart the service, make a mental note, make sure you restart that service. If it restarts automatically, I guess you're fine. But uh, just basically you got to you know, keep your eye on the output. I know it's a wall of text, but to have a general idea about what exactly happened when you updated. Absolutely. Yep. That's important. So getting into unattended upgrades. Now... In full transparency, I'm not fully aware of how other distributions do it because, um, you know, I, I, I'm the vic I'm a, basically a consequence of what I'm exposed to the most, uh, muscle memory, if you will. But Debian and Ubuntu is what we're referring to when we say unattended upgrades. But other distributions have a an equivalent thing that you can use. The idea being that it's going to essentially install all the security patches at a given time. With Debian and Ubuntu, you install the unattended upgrades package and you're pretty much all set, although you might want to adjust the configuration 
For example, you can put in an IP or an email address in the configuration for where the uh, message is being sent to. So you have some kind of notification that this happened. You could choose which time you want it to reboot, or even if you want it to reboot at all, you could say, no, thank you. You don't want it to reboot automatically. Or you could say, yeah, 2 a.m., a reboot is fine. Go ahead and restart it. You could choose how you want that to be set up. And going back to the importance level, if it's something that's not internet-facing, it's probably not a big deal to reboot it manually if it isn't exposed to the internet. Um, one could argue a vulnerability chain could still lead to someone getting into that server. But um, that aside, you make that choice. If it's not all that important, it's not public facing, okay, not a big deal. But if you have like a Linode instance, yeah, you probably need to do something about that and make sure that it reboots. And one of the ways I like to think about this is that I have some servers that I want to be online 24-7 and some that I don't. Now I'll talk about later how I solved the 24-7 one, but if I don't care, if it's down, for example, something I might use during the day, but I'm you know not using it three in the morning, it can reboot. That's fine. I don't care because I'm sleeping. So whatever. But if you know many people are using it, such as you know the learnlinux.tv website, I would probably prefer that not go down. Is yeah, basically if I can help it. Yeah. <laughs> I do have mindset to automatically apply security updates, which I believe is the default still for unattended. Uh, upgrade. So when you install yeah. it, that's actually the default. It's going to just apply the security patches. You have to go in there and change it if you want to do more. I'm fine with automatically apply security patches because they don't often require anything more than a service restart, but I do right. have it set to restart because the fear I have, and this actually applies to even my website, I'm fine if it has to reboot in the middle of the day because a hacked website being up is uh, much worse than a minor downtime because my website right. takes about 25 seconds, I think, from the time I type reboot till it's completely fully running, maybe even less because I got it on one of those uh, really high speed <laughs> servers. So it's like, it doesn't take long. Worst case is there was a 20 second disruption on my website that someone had to experience. But if they had to experience someone who defaced my website, that may be less pleasant and certainly a more awkward phone call going, Hey, yeah. you know what your site's got on it now? <laughs> uh -oh. Yeah. That's never good when that happens. Um, so, I mean, unattended upgrades is like the minimum, in my opinion, and it, it's so easy to set up. On, on my end, I think I've talked about this before, where my Proxmox servers shut down at like 1230 and, you know, midnight. And, you know, I don't care, right? Because they're down, they're internal, they can be down and it saves electricity. It's more green that way. There is a debate on whether or not it's harm, you know, harmful to servers to have them turn on every day. I argue it's fine. But um, for those servers, they have unattended upgrades set up, not automatic reboot. They all shut down anyway at, at 12.30. So I just make sure that it's scripted to happen at like 11 p.m. at night. So that way, when the cron, cron job hits that shuts everything down, they've already been updated. So when they come up the next day, which I have triggered at like 7.30 in the morning, about the time that I'm just getting started for the day, then all my servers come back online. So since they were updated the night before, it's fine. I don't really care. And then I handle the um, internet servers a little bit differently because they are being exposed. I have a um, next cloud server that is now publicly available. I have um, people using it all over the world, but it's just a few people. It can reboot at two in the morning. So you just basically um, make up your own mind as far as what should and should not reboot and when, and um, just use your best judgment. Yeah. 
and you can set this up even on your own system, but if you're like your desktop, but if you're using something like I'm a big Pop! OS fan and Pop! OS, it prompts you for the updates. I just say yes all the time. And I've actually, um, because having extra media devices plugged in, I've had to write a little script I call boot things. And boot things is just all the things that my system does when I log in. Because I do shut it off pretty much every day. I don't, just don't leave my computer on when I'm not here at the office. Uh, so I actually have it uh, running flat pack update and the app get update is just part of my uh, boot up process. So everything's nice and fresh uh, every time I put it up. Yep. Yep. That's one way to do it too. So one thing I want to touch on, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think this is going to be a little bit overboard, although I'm sure there's a certain subset of our audience that are, that's probably doing a really huge funny. subset of our audience that likes overboard. So let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's actually, maybe I'm, yeah, maybe everyone does. Um, so the whole idea of like a rolling update system. So in cloud, we have auto scaling slash auto healing where servers come online and go away to match the load. But similarly, we also have rolling updates, which is probably something more likely to happen in the home lab. Um, a good example of that is like a virtualization cluster. So let's just say you have, um, I don't know, three hypervisors. So you just move all the VMs off of one live migrate. They don't go down. So now this server, the host server has no VMs running on it. You can update it, reboot it when it comes back, move some VMs over to it, free up another server, update that one, restart it, repeat until each of the three hosts were updated and basically nothing ever went down except for the hosts themselves. Now, I mean, in the home lab, do you care? I don't know. Kind of depends, right? Because um, the worst case, your um, significant other or your kids are watching um, House on Netflix and or um, Plex or whatever. Um and all of a sudden it goes down. Okay, they can resume their show in 15 minutes. It's fine. Obviously, at a company, it's a lot harder. But I think um, we as home lab people, we still would rather not have to restart everything if we can help it because it's a little annoying, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I also kind of wonder, why are we even rebooting anything in 2021? If you were to ask me like 10 years ago, would we still be doing this? I'd be like, no, I doubt it. But then again, you know, I have a computer mouse in front of me, so I didn't think we'd still be using that either. But here we are. Here we are with some of those things. They just haven't, uh, that hasn't changed much. <laughs> so, yeah. And the reason why I'm not going to go too deeply into rolling updates is because it really depends on what type of system you have set up, whether or not that's easy to do or not. Um, I mean, especially when you get into database servers, I mean, having like a database cluster becomes a pain and I've done it. You, you could absolutely do it. But do you really want to go through all that? I mean, personally, I don't. But uh, maybe someone who um, enjoys database administration more than I do, maybe they'd be more keen to uh, set that up. And with the rolling updates um, out of the way, now we get into the concept of live patching, which is really cool. Yes. This is really neat the way that this is all engineered. I like this. It is, yeah. And I think the problem with it is it's it's a little confusing to people that are kind of starting out because most things, you know, you get an improvement in, in the Linux kernel and you benefit right away. So, um, for example, the um, AMD sync feature in the monitors, um, I forgot which kernel version um, came out with that, but it, as soon as it did, then everyone who had that monitor that had that um, feature in there benefited immediately. There's nothing to configure, nothing to tweak. It's just, okay, new kernel, new feature, reboot. You got the new feature. Great. That's kind of what we're used to, right? Um, new features can improve speed and things like that. And one of the new features um, in the past several years, I actually forgot which year it was, was the uh, concept of live patching 
in the kernel. And if you asked me, you know, years and years ago, if that's something we'd be doing, I'd be like, no, that's impossible. But it's not because you can do it. So the concept of live patching is literally injecting a patch right or a module or whatever, right into the kernel as it's running. So you don't have to restart for a kernel update. Um, you'll still get a, an updated kernel package that you install via your package manager such that when you reboot, it'll be booting into the updated kernel, but you'll be able to temporary, temporarily postpone those updates or the reboot because it's right there in the kernel injected live, which kind of seems like kernel black magic to me, but here we are. It's a very real possible thing we can do now. Yeah, being able to actually modify, they've done a lot of engineering uh, to... It's kind of cool because it used to be way more monolithic and much harder to compile everything into the kernel. And then as they started breaking yeah. it apart, uh, they solve for a lot of these pain points, you know, the way we load modules, the way we, you, everything, if you remember, was a add the kernel module, recompile the kernel. Not just, you couldn't just insert a module. You spent a lot of time recompiling it. And now come all the way here in 2020, we might still be using a mouse and not just doing voice commands for our computers in a fluid way. But now we do have the ability to, uh, slip that code in and replace or modify the code so it can keep working. And of course, like on next reboot, you're going to get it without the slip in. But that little slip in part, like you said, that's that kernel black magic stuff that's uh, really, really cool engineering. It really is. I, I think the problem with it, why I say it's complicated and not straightforward, like most of the features we get, is because there's no clear direction for most people. How do I go about doing this? So you could download a patch. You can put it in the proper directory. There's there's some things you have to do I won't get into, and you could go ahead and live patch right then and there. Now, are you really going to have time to look for these patches, find out how to install them? Um, it, it's not the easiest thing to do. So what people do instead is they subscribe to a paid service to do this for them. So all the you know common suspects like Red Hat and Ubuntu and, and the similar enterprise distributions out there, they have a paid service that you can use. That you subscribe to, and it'll just go ahead and check for patches and inject those automatically for you. So that way you don't have to worry about that. And that makes things a lot easier. But the problem is if you are using, you know, a little bit of um, SUSE Enterprise and maybe like a Red Hat family distro and maybe an Ubuntu server, um, you're potentially paying three different companies for the privilege of live patching, um, which gets a little tedious after a while. But um, um, you know, full disclaimer, they're a sponsor of Learn Linux TV, but I really love their service. Um, TuxCare makes a product called Kernel Care, which supports multiple distributions for live patching. So you actually can pay one company regardless of which distribution that you're using, um, which I think is a lot better. And they're a little bit cheaper, too. Now, um, Canonical has one service that's even cheaper than that, which is actually free, but only for three machines. But if you only have a few Ubuntu servers, then this is perfect because you can have like an enterprise level live patch system set up and working for literally no money at all. So um, three Ubuntu servers, it's, it's easy. You can actually set up live patch. There's instructions out there. I have a video on it as well that teaches you how to do it. Um, I think it's called the Ubuntu Advantage Program. Um, last time I checked, I think it was $5 per machine, but the first three machines are free. So if you only have a few, then I guess in your case, then that's great. Then you're all set. You have live patching. Yeah, it's a slick feature that they have on there. It's been a, a kind of a weird thing that that's like what these companies have settled on is the upsell. But it is also some more complicated engineering to get it to work. So I right. think that's probably why it's not. It's still open source. 
It's just that the the facilitating tools that do that have the extra fee attached to it. Right. And they're inconsistent too, which is another problem because if there's a vulnerability out there that's pretty bad, you're hoping that it's going to be live patched, but maybe the vendor doesn't agree with you on the level of importance and that's not one of them that's going to be live patched. Different companies will do different things. Um, one company might be better at it than others. I was looking at the some documentation before we hit the record button today. And right on Red Hat's site for this, they say, you know, this isn't meant to um, eliminate all reboots. We just basically patch the most important things, but they don't patch everything. And they're very clear about this. So they don't want you to think like using their service, you won't have to reboot your servers. You probably won't, but you might still have to. Whereas SUSE, they advertise this mitigates reboots. So they're more in on um, eliminating the reboots than Red Hat is. So depending on your distribution of choice, it may or may not actually um, be something you can really um, rely on. You might still find yourself rebooting your server, but at least we have the capability of doing this now, whereas we, of course, didn't until recently. Yeah, it's... I don't know. I, I should take a look because I know you the response to your channel. I've not actually tried the Tux Care, but it does sound kind of interesting to try that out. And I, mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you must have a video reviewing it to kind of show how they do that type of patch management, right? I do. And it's a little old, actually. I was surprised when I, I saw just how long they've been a sponsor because it didn't seem that long. And I looked at the video. I'm like, wow, that's my old branding. Um, so it needs to be updated. There's some new features that are coming out, which is why I haven't updated it yet, but I will. Now, another thing that they also are able to do, I think this is worth a discussion, is they're able to patch shared libraries as well, because that's another reason why you might need a reboot. So, for example, if you have something running and it's linked against a shared library, you know, maybe something like SSL that's been patched, then, you know, maybe restarting isn't a service isn't going to work. There's might be something else that needs to be restarted. It just becomes kind of like this... Um, rabbit hole of trying to avoid a reboot at this point. And it's not a kernel update at this point, but you still might have to reboot. I mean, technically you don't have to, if you could find out exactly how to restart everything that's using the shared uh, libraries, but that becomes a pain. It's probably easier to reboot, but then they have um, kernel care plus, which actually um, live patches running services as well. Um, uh, In particular, certain shared libraries, you can't say that it's going to, you know, patch everything, but there's going to be some, you know, common shared libraries that they will live patch, which um, eliminates even more reboots, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, I like the service quite a bit. They're a little cheaper from what I've seen when I first looked at it than the others, and they um, go after multiple distributions, basically LTS style distributions. So your enterprise Linux, um, Ubuntu LTS, they're not going to work with the intermediary releases of Ubuntu, for example, because they have a life. Um, They don't support Arch because they have a life. Um, But (laughs) I mean, no offense to Arch users. I love Arch. I always have at least one installation. Um, But it's just one of those things that you can consider. I guess what it comes down to in the home lab, is it worth the money? Maybe you could save the money by just rebooting and not pay anyone anything. Or if you use Ubuntu, just use the three uh, free servers that you you can use. And if you only have one server that's facing the internet, then you can just put the live patch service from Canonical on that server. And maybe that'll just be enough to solve the problem. Yeah. And I see a question here, and this is something, you know, towards the end here we want to talk about. And now I guess now as good as time as any is when things go wrong when you're patching. And I'll, I had a mail server that I maintained for years. And one thing that did happen was, well, I had to maintain it for, I think, eight years and 
the updates finally did deprecate a few <laughs> functions you have in the file. This is something you kind of have to deal with. It's dealt with relatively well for major packages, but for minor packages, it may not be as dealt with as well. So when there's version updates, they will deprecate maybe some function that's in the configuration files. Right. You have to address that manually in some of them. And there's you just have to kind of be aware. It's part of being a Linux system administrator, because if this system worked 100% all the time, I mean, what would me and Jay do? <laughs> just, right, yeah, there wouldn't be anything to talk about, would there? Um, yeah. Kind of awkward. But... So, um. You have to kind of look for this and it, it's very, it does a good job of telling you. Um, I yeah. was able to ignore some errors in postfix for about, a, I don't know, a good year. <laughs> and it would be before it finally wouldn't, postfix wouldn't start because of a deprecated function. I'm like, oh, I guess the time's up on the warning of they're deprecating this function in future versions. The future version is here. Uh, you just have to keep an eye for it. It doesn't seem to happen too often, like on major things like Apache, Nginx and those. Um, they're relatively, it's weird, you know, looking at Apache going, I've been doing the same format for Apache comp files for, I don't know how many years, but a long time. And usually though, if they have a whole rewrite of a version of the configuration file, you'll get a whole update into the version of the software. So you'll end up eventually being told this is not even supported anymore. Uh, it is something you have to watch out for, but I don't, I haven't really seen it come up too often. Uh, most of the time in, I'll use Graylog as an example, because when they did some bigger version updates, part of the update was re-updating uh, the changes and getting rid of things that were deprecated. It did it automatically for me in the configuration file. It says, no, this isn't used anymore. We removed it. It just kind of is in the notes. And you're like, awesome. You mitigated it for me. And that's just really yep. good coding on the developer's part for the people maintaining the software. Third-party packages or small one-off projects. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a hodgepodge. Not all of them update fine. Right. No, that that's very true. And, and, and it is the case. I mean, sometimes it deprecate things and um, they change things and you have to redo how you do things. And if anyone listening thinks that's annoying to have to redo something because of an update, I agree with you. It absolutely is. But think about it from our perspective. Um, when we wake up in the morning and determine that we have to redo an entire tutorial because it's no longer current with uh, the way it is in reality. So surprise, get recording. Um, it's not yeah. a fun time for anyone, I don't think. But it's just a nature of the business. We we have this happen. So um, it's just one of those things. One of the many things that we deal with is these updates and um, you know what to do about them. But getting back to the question. What do you do about this? So it really depends on what kind of breakage you're experiencing. Um, like you were saying, it doesn't happen with Linux very often. It's very rare, but I have seen it. I had um, an Arch Linux install. I know what you're thinking already as soon as I say Arch Linux, but um, this this has happened on other distributions as well. But I remember this one um, because I remember how I fixed it, where I had this old laptop that was already like three or four generations old by the time I installed Arch on it. So usually with Linux, older hardware is rock solid. Unless they deprecate something, nobody is really going back and changing too much of the old code unless there's a vulnerability. So your old uh, Latitude um, laptop is probably safe. But in, my, in this case, it wasn't. So I installed the kernel update, rebooted, and it wouldn't boot. It was bricked. Like, it just wouldn't start. And what I had to do is just get a live CD, go into a chroot environment, and I um, sideloaded the previous kernel back into it, and then it booted up just fine. Um, and now normally with Ubuntu or Debian and other distributions, it's a lot easier to recover because you just select the previous kernel 
to go ahead and get you started. So that way you're not booting into the newly updated one that for whatever reason has a regression. So for those distros, it's really easy. Just hit escape at the beginning, choose the uh, previous kernel in your set. But um, Arch Linux, for example, replaces the current kernel with the new one. So you, there's nothing to go back to, which is why I always make sure I have two completely unrelated kernel trees installed so I can still have that capability. But that's if it's a kernel update that breaks things. If it's a um, you know service like Apache Nginx or whatever, um, you probably have to tail the logs as you're restarting the service, which of course is going to crash. But why did it crash? If you're tailing the log, you can see exactly why it crashed and then make a decision as far as what you have to do. And honestly, it's pretty much down to copy the error message and paste it into Google because nine out of 10 times, that'll lead you to the answer. Yeah, the first result will be on Stack Exchange. And yep. matter of fact, with I, I with Postfix, I remember the problem was it didn't even require any Googling. It it said like line 39 is no longer supported. You just could comment it out because it was a deprecated function that was enabled by default. And they didn't accept uh, turning it on with the parameter that was used in the previous version. It was some type of the way it handled certificates. So it, it was like all they had to do was comment that out. And it, it's telling me line 39. I live until right. I 39, you know, comment out. Oh, look, it, it starts up fine. A lot of them, each service, you just have to go through the logs. Um, and I've, we brought this up, I think, when we were talking about cool Linux tools. LNAV is one of my favorites. I tmux, split the screen. Mm -hmm. I LNAV to the log file of the service I'm trying to restart because it'll highlight all the errors in red. It'll scroll automatically. I have that on there. Start service. See what the error is. All right. I got the error pulled up down at the bottom of the screen. Then you go and... Uh, type Vim and whatever the config file is for that service. And away we go. I figure out what is it that needed to be changed, what needed to be updated, what's been deprecated that needs to be fixed uh, to get this service back up and running. Yep, absolutely. Now, how can you prevent having to go through a lot of work to recover your systems? And the answer is obviously using snapshots, which depending on your type of server could be very easy to do or not so easy. So for example, if it's a physical server, you aren't going to have the same tooling that you have with a virtual machine. A virtual machine, you could just go in the GUI, hit the snapshot button before you do your update. You could just you know, reboot it or whatever you have to do. If it doesn't come up, something's broke, you don't have time to fix it right now, you got to move on with your life, you just restore the snapshot and then you're back to the way it was. That's always a great thing to do. Um, we also have tools like TimeShift, which can be used on Linux. Um, it only works on distributions. I don't know if they fixed the, this yet, but you have to be running Grub, which most distributions are. Um, it'll still allow you to restore certain things, but a full system restore may or may not be possible if, unless you're using Grub. But there's also like LVM snapshots you could use. If it's ZFS, you could use that. Um, ButterFS has snapshots as well. Um, if all else fails, you could take a Clonezilla image if it's a physical server and none of those things apply to you. So that way you have something to fall back to if um, the update doesn't go as planned. Yeah. And for me, I've really shifted to running all my critical infrastructure as VMs over the years. And I mean, containers are good as well. And there's some stuff where the VM does have maybe Docker inside of it, but that just simplifies things quite a bit, especially when, yep. you know, you're just doing a new Docker poll for a new image and swapping it out real quick. That generally goes really fast. There's a minimal amount of downtime there. Um, and then I'm a big fan of, for obviously a lot of you, I've talked about on channel XCPNG and like Jason earlier, it will do the rolling pool patch updates to keep the XCPNG server up to date, but then all the VMs inside, it's just process procedure. Cause even some of our infrastructure does run on windows. Um, you know, we just snapshot it, load the new version. As long as everything's working fine, I hold the snapshot for maybe 24 hours, make sure there's no issues, I'll purge it and away we go. Life is good. 
Yeah, I really love time shift. I think that's something that if it's compatible with your system that um, everyone should check into. Um, you just have to have the extra disk space for all the snapshots and whatnot. But it's so easy to use. I mean, it might take you a few minutes to to learn a few things about it like everything else, but it's, it's helpful. You can re restore your entire system if you have to. At least you'll have that snapshot if you need it. I think that should be the mentality is if you're not uh, snapshotting things somehow, um, let's find a way to snapshot because if nothing yeah. else, you'll probably really enjoy having that snapshot. Uh, hopefully you'll never need it, but if you do, it, it's great to have. It makes it so much faster, especially if the if the problem's a little bit more convoluted, especially when there's a dependency, like some dependency updated. And this has happened sometimes where the line of business application software may not be aware of the dependency that got updated. This is one of the big reasons for snapshotting when you have those right. one-off tools. So if a dependency, maybe it's got a Java dependency and there's a new version of Java, a new version of MongoDB, and you have a tool loaded on that system that actually depends on MongoDB. Well, that update may break it. And then the problem you run into is the line of business application is not actually ready for the new version. So they have right. to do something. So that snapshot lets you hurry up, regress back to the previous version. Like, do I really need this version of Mongo just yet? You contact the developer of the software and hey, you apparently don't work with the latest update to Mongo. And they go, we will next week. So then you just hold off on that patch an extra week. But that snapshot is that saving yeah. point on there. This And this is where you get a little bit off because it's the line of business applications <laughs> and those one-off toolings. You know, I'll mention things like Unify controllers and stuff like that. Your non-standard non you know your extra packages not your standard linux packages like an apache or mysql those are more mature well integrated into the update process and generally don't give you those kind of problems whether you're running a mail server um you have a whole lot of other issue, issues if you're on a mail server but if you're running yeah. web servers and you're running um wordpress and things like that those problems generally when there's a new version of php it's generally not breaking wordpress because it just expects the newest version of php and things like that those type of things actually integrate really well together yeah they really do now, I think one question that um, may come up if it hasn't already is, okay, but how do I know what vulnerabilities I should be patching against if I only have time to patch a few things right now and I want to just get the most egregious things out of the way? Um, I like the tool Linus, L-Y-N-I-S. That's um, really great for doing an audit of your system. It's a free tool that you can download. They have an enterprise version if you want it, but if nothing else, you could just add their community repository to get the latest version installed you can run a, an audit within linus and it gives you this huge report with uh, oh gosh so much information in that report i actually have a video i'm i'm doing right now that's showing how this works and you could take that report and you understand exactly what the most important concerns are in your case for your server that kind of gives you an action plan as far as what you should target first so if your biggest threat is a you know an apache vulnerability then you know you have to at least update Apache and make sure that the service gets restarted. If there's a kernel vulnerability, well, you know what to do there. So um, if you're using live patching, you can make sure that the live patch uh, tool is actually patching that vulnerability. Um, if if uh, Linus shows that it's still vulnerable, perhaps it is or perhaps it's not, but maybe it's better just to reboot it. But it, at least you'll have some idea. Yes. It's a good start to run that tool to figure out what might be hanging out there. It checks some of the configuration files like SSH as well, too. It's been a little while since I run it, but it, it kind of gives you a whole list of things you should be doing to lock down your Linux server a little more. Yep, absolutely. And and that's a whole story of, of it by itself. I mean, we do entire episodes and entire 
um, videos just on, you know, individual sub subjects within that um, realm. So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to security. It's a never-ending conversation. Yes, and it's better to be patched than insecure. Hopefully that rings true because, uh, man, we I've seen some really old systems and quit bragging about uptime. That's how I know you aren't patching things. Especially yeah, <laughs> it, it drives me crazy because it's like the no one cares, right? I mean, I, I think it is kind of cool to an extent, but it, at the same yeah. time, it's like I'm avoiding best practices. Aren't you know? I'm the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, it, it no, it's cool if I, you're running a Commodore. <laughs> oh, that so you, I've seen some of those with some long uptime. I've seen uh, a few. I love when I see some of these uh, articles out there. You know, someone's still using this old machine, and those are cool. Those are really not. I mean, they're not connected to the net. They're they're isolated, hopefully, from the rest of the world. So they're kind of novel that they're still on and running for all this time. But modern systems, especially ones that are internet accessible, even if they're not, even if you have them behind your firewall and they're more, more for your private access, especially browsers, you know, I'll throw yep. that in there. There's a reason browsers have gone to their own patching systems and having them up to date and they're updated in real time because their browser is now the threat surface that you interact with, with the greater world. So the browser is the way in, so to speak. So you, you may be thinking I'm behind yep. a firewall, so I'm safe, but then I'm like, well, do you use the internet at all with a browser? You need to keep those up to date. Uh, the latest version of Firefox added a feature to, they, they found basically a hack in Firefox where people were in, uh, modifying the proxy threat actors, not people, um, not just the general public. Uh, the threat actors were modifying the proxy to stop Firefox from updating to hold back patches that would get them out. So Firefox now has a way it can go around the proxy to check for an update to see if you're running an out of date version of Firefox. Because the war against you know the threat actors and getting in your systems when they know everything else is patched public facing and you're behind a firewall the next thing is the places you interact directly with so yeah the browser from your personal standpoint just to round this whole talk off is absolutely you got to keep the browser up to date all the time that's uh whatever yep. browser of choice you're using is firefox or chrome uh either one of them keep them patched it's one of the reasons i'm always a skeptic before someone says well what about this other browser tom i'm like how good oh. is their patching that is <laughs> That scares me so much. Like, I've literally seen browsers that, you know, I mean, people can fork anything they want. It's open source. Yeah. So so no disrespect intended, but a browser is not something somebody should rage fork. You know, someone gets upset right. with Firefox or Mozilla or whatever because they're, you know, doing something they don't like. Oh, I'm just going to fork the browser. And it's, it, they do it. And maybe they're part of like three people that are updating the browser. Are they keeping up with CVEs? And then the con constant counter argument is, um, well, it's an open source browsing engine. So as soon as the libraries get updated, it's all automatically fixed, which is untrue because they're putting additional um, Chrome and UI stuff on top of it that could be causing brand new CVEs to happen. So I usually squirm when someone you know says, I'm using insert name of browser here that I've never even heard of before. And they're doing their online banking and everything on that browser. I just have to facepalm because, I mean, you could fork anything you want. There's nothing stopping you. But please stop forking browsers. It's just going to cause problems at the end of yeah. the day. It, it's, it is one of those worlds we live in right now where many of them are based on Chromium. So the open source yep. Chromium engine and Google uh, is the maintainer for Chromium, the open source. And then they have Google Chrome based on it. Edge is now based on it. So it also, like Jay says, where's that vulnerability found in there? And if the vulnerability is in the Chromium engine, great. 
Google updates it, Google rebuilds Google Chrome with that updated Chrome engine that's patched. But this is where you've seen the diversion. So Microsoft Edge puts the Chromium engine, but then their own flavor on top of it. And they've had vulnerabilities yeah. in the essentially the sauce they've added on top of the Chromium, their integration. So this is that concern that comes into each one of these is even though they may start with a secure engine and you think they're getting updates, well, that covers the engine part provided that they pull from upstream as the upstream updates come in. But then you have to worry about the extras they've done on there. There was a leak for a while in Brave Browser, because I know it's a really popular one out there, where Brave misimplemented the way they were handling uh, the Tor protocol. And they were leaking a lot more data than they thought. It was just a misimplementation. It wasn't anything malicious. But these are the concerns that can come up. Um, and there was just a privacy leak, less a security issue. But it's one of those things. It's worth keeping a very well conscious thinking mind about this. That's the best thing I can think of. You really got to yeah. keep it at the forefront of your mind before you see some random browser going, Hey, this one looks cool. So <laughs> yeah. One, one example of that is this browser. I don't know how many people remember this one called Reconk. It was for um, basically a browser made for the plasma desktop because it was made using the cute toolkit. And, you know, there's a, a number of people that thought it was a great browser. I mean, to be fair, it was good. I'm not saying any of these browsers are are bad from a usability standpoint, but it was discontinued in 2014. These browsers generally don't last long. It's hard to maintain them. And uh, sometimes the developers, you know, they're human, they get tired, uh, something changes in their life, they have to do something else, uh, they can't really uh, spend any time on it, or maybe they're not as passionate about it as they used to be, or they can't find a maintainer or anyone to adopt it. Um, that happens a lot. There, there's, there should be like a website that's a graveyard for browsers because there's <laughs> quite a few of them out there that came and gone and everyone's like, yes, this is the best browser ever, it's great. And then, you know, a year later, it doesn't exist. Yep, that's so true. All right. I think we've uh, patched this whole show up, right, Jay? I think <laughs> we have, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you got a better understanding of patching. Uh, I do have a video called Unintended Upgrade, Using Unintended Upgrades to Avoid Unintended Consequences. So it's about this. Jay's got some videos on his channel about, you know, Linux patching and things like that. You can check out, even if it's an older video, he does have one yep. on TuxCare. Uh, full disclosure, they are a sponsor of Jay's channel, not mine, but the, uh, you know, either way, it's a, it's a neat service if you're looking for a service to uh, patch it. But those, hopefully you got a more well-rounded system and hopefully you don't have any out-of-date systems that right. you have in place. So. And if you have a Commodore 64 with with some uh, crazy uptime, please send us a screenshot. That'd be oh, great. yeah, yeah. Take a picture of that and tag us on Twitter on yep. that. I, I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for Commodore 64s. Yep. Uh, Wendell just did a video on, you know, going nostalgic on them. So I always, I, I'm a sucker for those articles because I, Played Commodore 64, TRS 80, especially big fan. Yep. You know, you know the old stuff. So Tandy. Uh, Tandy. Yes. All the nostalgia. I don't know if we'll do a nostalgia episode or not. This is the home lab show, not the home lab, but I, I do have a nostalgia friend we could bring on. So then again, you know, an argument can be made for um the fact that you know, even in Home Lab, we we always have this, and I know everyone's guilty of this. We have this downloads directory somewhere, probably on our NAS, and it probably has every game that we've ever purchased um, since like uh, 1995. Let's be honest, and ISO images of Doom 2 and whatnot. So it might be fun just to kind of talk about running this old software because at the end of the day, I mean, you may as well have some fun playing Doom 2 on a Raspberry Pi or something. It, it's yep. you know, a lot of fun. Well, now we want to go watch the 8-bit guy. <laughs> go live, live some nostalgia. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.